Welcome to Deckert's LIBORcast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Deckard LIBOR cast. This is the 11th in our series. I'm Matt Hayes, your host. I'm a partner in our global finance group and chair of the Deckard LIBOR task force. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Jason Granite from Goldman Sachs. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've you've picked a great week to join us with the it's announcement very timely, for sure. <laughs> the the announcement this week of the extension into mid 2023, which we had expected to not happen. Uh, so I think for those of you that are procrastinators out there, probably are breathing a sigh of relief for for most tenors. Uh, we did have the exception though of one week and two month LIBOR where uh, it's been announced that those won't be continued. Um, Jason, do you have any views on the the announcements? You know, just at a high level, uh, the way I think about this is is twofold. One, you know, coming off of Quarles' testimony from before Thanksgiving, uh, he clearly laid out some comments and thoughts to Congress indicating that, uh, you know, he had concerns around the potential use of a synthetic LIBOR in the U.S. system. He definitely was supportive of legislation to help the long tail, but he was in favor of of using some version of LIBOR as constructed to try to mature as many of the of the legacy securities as possible. And so given that the plans that were laid out from the FCA and the global regulators were centered around, you know, parliamentary powers of synthetic rates and other things, and and clearly that testimony that I referenced indicated that that there was some discomfort with that in some capacity, coupled with some meaningful supervisory oversight to stop um, use at the end of, of 21, you know, the, the, what's still left to be brought to light, uh, much more clearly is exactly what all of that supervisory oversight looks like. Also, there's a wider range of outcomes in what can happen. And I'm sure we'll get into, you know, market impact and those things. But when you tack on 18 months, uh, you know, wider range of outcomes can happen, uh, you know, in different places, but it also probably allows for, uh, a very good piece of legislation to get done over time to deal with the back end. And there's a lot of momentum on that front. Uh, and it also has broken the the link, you know, on, on the schedule of the different currencies, you know, as the other currencies that the FCA oversees are, are, are likely tracking. And now dollars is, is on a slightly different schedule, at least on the panel side. And so, you know, there's a you know, few things that are out there that people are going to have to navigate as they go through this transition. Does this announcement change your view on the process overall? So, you know, some aspects of this are really the same as where we were before. If I think about the expectation of, of beforehand, it was that we were likely to have a pre-cessation event or a non-representative event, and there would be a continued publication of some LIBOR in a synthetic form, which seems to be the plans that are, are going forward in the other currencies. Um, with a pretty hard stop of use through the non-representativeness at the end of 21. And now that looks somewhat similar. You're going to have a continued production of a rate to service legacy securities. It's going to be in a panel form as opposed to a pre-cessation form. Um, But you're going to have the supervisory oversight and, and both the FCA and the Fed's kind of releases indicate that they're collaborating globally on that front. And so you could end up right where we were, just the nature of how legacy securities get serviced is different from a rate use perspective, but from a project plan, execution, be ready for new rates, make sure you have language, all of those things, like, quite frankly, not a lot of that has changed much at all. 
So do you think this this also helps lead the market to a consistent transition time frame then and, and more will be ready to transition in mid 2023 than maybe would have if, if it were uh, discontinued at the end of 21? Well, I think, you know, you have the front book and the back book, right? And so I think that there's been meaningful progress made across markets on the front book. You see the CCPs change their, their discounting rate. You've seen derivative markets uh, start to adopt globally RFR liquidity, and that's been improving, you know, that the CCPs released that October and November, more recent months have been some of the highest volume months ever. So you've seen that that market adoption take place. You've seen capital markets, you know, bond markets continue to steadily show depth and structure. Uh, obviously, loan markets have been on the slower side. So I think that this the, the time will help, you know, loan markets be more adapting and, and, and migrate. And so front book was kind of in train and, and, and moving. Uh, what this is really does is it helps back book and legacy securities run off. And, you know, I think that, that the testimony that the vice chairman gave, you know, indicates that that was the focus on on him, uh, that they wanted to make it as safe for the back book as possible. Um, there's a bunch of legislative proposals that are being worked on. You know, this likely allows for those things to get worked on over some good, appropriate pace and get done. You know, maybe it'll be over the first bit of next year as opposed to scrambling over just the next few weeks or months. And so it allows that to happen. Uh, but, you know, for me, this change is really about the legacy securities. I think that the forward transition and the readiness and all those things, you know, have to be what they were before this announcement. On the uh, the forward transition point, has Goldman started originating SOFR-based loans? And if not, do you expect to offer them soon? Goldman Sachs has been active in, in SOFR markets. We even just before Thanksgiving, actually two and a half billion SOFR linked benchmark note deal across two different notes. We had done notes before. We've been active in that market. Um, there's been some large Fortune 500 loan deals that have been announced and, and, and Goldman has been participating on those in a SOFR way. Um, you know, kind of those have been publicly announced so I can comment on them. What I will tell you is that there's been, you know, very active dialogue and a lot of movement on using RFRs across the loan structure, across the capital markets. We've been involved in a tremendous amount of RFR risk transfer activity uh, across all different disciplines, loans, derivatives, bond issuance that I mentioned, et cetera, et cetera. And so we kind of have our hands in all of the pots, uh, you know, across all the RFRs around the world. And, you know, we've been pretty active in that. And it, this is about doing what's best and helping our clients navigate this transition. And, you know, our clients need to, to migrate in a safe and sound way. And, and we've been there to help them do that. How are counterparties approaching the transition? I guess, do you have a view on, on whether most uh, issuers are you know, ready? It sounds like they are. Have you had any difficulties getting them over the line and being comfortable with the SOFR-based product? So counterparties is a wide word, depend on, on what type of counterparty we're talking about. I would say, obviously, there's different sectors of the market are in different places. Uh, I would say one key important nugget is that some of our, for example, some of our corporate clients rely on third-party technology platforms, treasury workstations, other infrastructure that is also a dependency in the chain to get ready to do it. And so I would say that our counterparties broadly are ready. There's been some infrastructure catch-up that has needed to happen. Actually, quite frankly, a lot of that has come online in the last 
few weeks and months, you know, more recently. And so that there's been increased activity and inquiry. Uh, and I would say broadly client activity has only grown and expanded in so far other RFRs over the preceding months. Uh, I think the ISDA protocol has been very helpful on that front. Uh, that protocol was released near the end of October. That is forcing people to take action and sign a piece of paper. Uh, so that forces conversation. It forces people to look at risk and understanding. And so that's been a big help. Uh, obviously, people active in the derivative market. I mentioned earlier that the CCPs made their changes. Uh, that's prompted a lot of changes of activity and, and way people calculate valuations, et cetera. So all these things that the market laid out to help galvanize activity, whether it be the protocol, whether it be the CCP changes, et cetera, are kind of doing what they were intended to do and, and bring attention, bring action, and bring volume. Are there still operational concerns and issues that remain? And, and what do you think still needs to be worked through? Or is it all done and we're ready to go? No, obviously, there's still a meaningful amount of, of, of work through. I mentioned there's a lot of technology providers and infrastructure that is coming along. You know, one of the big changes and challenges in this entire transition is moving from these one-month rates, three-month rates, to some version of an overnight rate. And different parties are using different overnight rates. Some are using simple average overnight. Some are using compounded average overnight. Some are using overnight in advance. Some are using overnight in arrears. And so there's an amalgamation of different rates, and those have infrastructure modeling, technology enhancements that are required. And the reality is, is that those are getting worked through in a, in a grander way. And different clients, different counterparties, different parts of the business are, are, are further ahead and some are further behind. So there's still a good amount of work to be done on that. But, but there's been a good chunk of it that has been done, which is why you're seeing the activity in the capital markets, you know, pick up over time as, as that infrastructure is in place to absorb it all. Do you think those distinctions between the daily simple, the compounded and arrears and advanced conventions will have a, a meaningful effect and create fragmentation in the market? Or do you see more of a convergence occurring over time, even, even with the different methodologies? So you've seen in, in what I would describe as like institutional capital markets, there being a convergence around the use of arrears. That's the direction of the derivatives market. There's an index that the Fed provides that allows you to essentially link back to it without doing all the math. So the Fed's helped a lot on that side. That's also where you know bond markets have essentially moved to. So derivative markets, bond markets, institutional capital markets, as, I, as I've described them, seem to be coalescing around the arrears. Uh, I think when it moves to the consumer market or the loan markets, that's where I think that you're likely to see some other conventions whether it be simple or otherwise, you know, based on the infrastructure, the diversity of use, the wide range of participants and infrastructure that's used there. You know, I, so I think those markets are, are likely to migrate to their own set of standards, whereas the, the institutional capital markets are pretty much on their merry way. I would be remiss not to mention in the background, there are term SOFA rates being contemplated and thought about. The ARC, you know, I, 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 I sit on the ARC, has an RFP out there, for term rates, those rates are being, you know, those RFPs are out there. I'm, I'm not on the team of the ARC that's looking at them, so I don't have any special insight that I can share with you. Uh, but I can tell you that RFP responses are coming in. Those will get contemplated, and the ARC at some point will make a, a recommendation or not based on the on the robustness calculation of those rates, et cetera. And so 
uh, there's a widespread belief that those term rates will will get developed over over the course of, of of next year. That could also help segments of the market that are struggling from an infrastructure perspective and challenges, because the, that from an operational aspect looks a lot like the LIBOR rates, and so it'll be a lot easier from an infrastructure as I mentioned, perspective, whereas institutional and capital markets are kind of off to the races already, you know, mostly driven by derivatives, and they're living in an arrears world, and, and the documentation is, is kind of already written that way. Now, particularly with the extension, do you think that a term rate will be available before June 2023, that some participants and products will just, you know, move to term and not have this sort of intermediate step of a compound in arrears or simple in arrears? So the ARC's pace transition plan laid out that this rate was targeted to be available in the second half of 2021. I would say that schedule is still somewhat intact. Um, and so if that's the case, that would still even be before the original end of 21 uh, deadlines. What I would say about it from an interim step is you have this after 1231, you know, no production of new LIBOR or supervisory guidance. And so if the rates aren't ready, you're going to have to, and you want to produce floating rate things in 22, then you're going to have to have that interim step anyway. That's where the nothing's really changed, even though it feels like a lot has changed with this 18 month extension. It's really about the legacy, not the front book. But what it will allow is if this thing comes to be born in the back end of 21, there's a lot more runway to get it up and, and, and use and get comfort and things out there without a mad dash, you know, to the end of next year. And so, you know, it could definitely provide space for, for comfort and use, but if it's not ready, there still might be that interim step that, that people were preparing for. And I guess my, my overarching set of guidance is arrears rates and, some version of overnight compounded rates or overnight simple average or all these different things are going to have a substantial part of the market going forward. Curious what your view is on the the credit sensitive rate question. Uh, I mean, do we need another alternative to SOFR for LIBOR or do you think the market will you know entirely coalesce around SOFR based rates? Yeah, I think that SOFR is likely, you know, as I was saying about the structure of SOFR, kind of the lion's share being in the arrears rate, I think that the pie chart going forward, SOFR is going to have the, the largest part of the pie chart running away, especially given the nature of the derivatives in the market and other things. You know, if you look at the percentage of LIBOR in the world, 95 plus percent of it exists in derivative space. And so even if there's other rates that come to be and some of them exist, some of them are in beta form, it's still not going to have a a gigantic percentage of the overall pie given given where derivatives are. That being said, you know, obviously the range of outcomes has been widened. There's 18 more months. There's likely to be, you know, there's there's groups and market participants and vendors discussing different rates. And so those things are going to be continued to be workshopped and 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 put out there and and likely tested in, in, in many different ways. And so whether things stick and how they stick and what regulatory guidance is given around them is, is, is kind of yet to play out. Um, you know, regulators have already said that they're, they don't want to, you know, adjudicate exactly what rates are used in, in, in lending markets and those things. So, but this definitely gives, you know, lenders and borrowers more time to figure out what that looks like. 
But I will tell you is that those rates probably are on a longer timeline of creation than the term SOFA rates. Um, and so, uh, you know, those things might go through an interim step if those markets uh, develop for sure, because this this supervisory guidance of the end of next year, it's unlikely that those rates are built robust, used, you know, very wide to have them be used in a very widespread manner, um, you know, a year from now. But, you know, if you fast forward a few years, is there a possibility that that 5% that's in LIBOR outside of derivatives and lending markets is used in a few different places? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that was already somewhat happening already. If you're an investor in floating rate securities that use a SOFR-based benchmark, do you have any concerns about that not being a credit-sensitive rate, and should you use any strategies to mitigate any risks related to that concern, or is the risk overblown? You know, I have, I have an interesting opinion on this one. If you think about why you would invest in a floating rate security, You'd invest in a floating rate security because you don't want to take a view on interest rate policy. And so if I buy a five-year bond from widget company, I could buy fixed or I could buy floating. Let's leave the rate that it floats against out. Essentially, I'm taking two views there. I'm taking a duration view, obviously what the path of interest rates will be, will the fixed rate that I'm being offered by widget company be better or worse than the series of floating rates that I would be given. And I'm also taking credit risk on widget company. Will widget company be around in five years to pay me back? And so if what I'm doing is taking a view on the path of interest rates, then SOFR is going to very clearly represent the path of where the Fed takes interest rates. And so I think you're going to get that. The spread by which you get paid over SOFR needs to compensate you for the credit risk component of Widgetco. And so what I think this change from LIBOR to SOFR has done is it puts a premium on making sure you get that spread right. Because before you got LIBOR plus a spread, but embedded in that LIBOR was some bank credit risk. And you could argue some overall market credit risk beta because banks are kind of a driver of market beta uh, uh, on that side. And so now if you invest, you have to say, all right, SOFR is my path of interest rates. I need to go price the credit worthiness of widget. And so what it's going to do is it's going to put a premium on credit work for investors to really calibrate that right, because they're not going to get this cushion that was embedded. Now, what I will also say is that there were many periods, whether it be the financial crisis in 08, which was non-financial credit risk, was much better than financial credit risk versus the COVID period where it was the opposite. You know, financial credit risk was much safer and sound and there were a lot of parts of the non-financial sector that were having challenges. And so, you know, we can take the two scenarios and look at the dichotomy. And so my perspective is SOFR plus a spread is a cleaner way for people to price the two risks they're taking in widget company. And so going forward, it'll be a little bit more healthy and they won't have to kind of embed this whole, oh, but I also have some bank risk inside this thing. You know, from that standpoint, it's a little bit cleaner for the for the portfolio manager or the investor or the, or the credit analyst that's looking at widget company. But the market is going to have to think about how to work through that because LIBOR has been 
been the baseline and, and the apples to apples that people have used for, for many, many years. Right now, turning to the, the legislative solutions that you uh, alluded to earlier, what's your view in general of the proposed New York legislation? We've been supportive of the legislation broadly. We think that all these legislative paths are going to be needed in one way, shape, or form to help with that long tail, which is aligned with um, you know the vice chair's testimony from before Thanksgiving. You know, we're, we're super supportive of it. Uh, the only thing I would say is that, you know, my standpoint of it is make sure that it's it's thoughtful, holistic, and, it, you know, attacks all the contracts in an appropriate manner. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're at the law firm, not me. So, I you know, I, this is one of those that I should turn back on you and ask your view on the details. I'm not going to try to pretend to, to, to be a lawyer and dissect the details, but I think that creating a legislation uh, that gives safety and soundness and, and, and certainty to the to cash flows on securities and contracts that never contemplated this is a good, healthy thing for the back end of all these, uh, or the hard tail, uh, as they call it. Yeah, I, I defer to you, Matt, uh, on, on how you feel about the actual details of the, uh, of the legislation being the lawyer. Well, there, there's certainly uh, details to be worked out. Uh, I, I think that the industry is largely consulting on it, but I think we've got good engagement. Um, do you think it generally solves the tough legacy question, though, or is, is that going to linger or sort of hoping that it, it, to the extent there's, there's any holes in it, that it gets resolved before it passes, if it assuming it does? We've been working through asking all of the questions. And as you say, industry consultation, you know, I, I throwing a, a wide net around a lot of different market participants and a lot of different parties in the story. There's investors, there's trustees, there's custodians, there's issuers, there's all different parts of the of the chain here. And so what we've tried to do in the industry working groups is get as much representation from all the different aspects as possible to make sure that all the questions are being asked as much as possible ex ante. Like you, I don't know if all the holes are being plugged. I'm not, you know, I, I have my perspective through my experience. But what's important to me is that we include people from all these different aspects of the chain to make sure that they bring their lens to the conversation on the legislation such that everyone who has a responsibility to service these contracts over time, all of their concerns or considerations are contemplated in one way or another. From my perspective, as long as that is what's done, then we will likely get to a very good place. Whether that place is perfect and covers everything, you know, 100% and everything are big words, but I think that we're definitely going to get something that is fairly comprehensive, uh, especially if all different participants from the different angles have been brought together. You have the right energy plus the right varying of perspectives. And so that will likely yield a reasonably good outcome. Um, and you saw both, uh, you know, Vice Chair Quarles and Chair Powell comment yesterday that, you know, this is going to be appropriate to deal with the long-term legacy contracts. And so as far as I'm concerned, it's about getting the right people in the room. And I think the industry has done a reasonably good job of doing that. Do you have any concerns about anyone uh, sort of not being engaged sufficiently in the process? Or do you think this is, a, you know, the extension allows... Uh, more to get engaged in this and and try to understand how to get engaged better. With reference to the legislation or the transition in aggregate? 
But I think the, the transition in aggregate, which obviously will affect the legislation, hopefully it seems that the more that understand the transition, the more that can have uh, influence over the legislation and hopefully get us to a, a result that, that can work for the market more broadly. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, that that's my point about bringing in all the different perspectives and the different lenses and make sure that people's, you know, the different angles are being considered. Uh, I would say that there's been, you know, very widespread, broad engagement from all the different perspectives, at least from what I've seen. And so I think that independent of the, the, the Monday's announcements and the extra 18 months and these different things, I think that was happening. And I, and I think that the value of the legislation was seen and the perspectives were brought in. So I was comfortable with the direction of travel on that, independent of what was said on Monday. Uh, I think Monday will only help enhance because, you know, now you have the regulators saying more frequently in, in different forums that, using the legislation is going to be helpful for, for the back end. And so therefore, you know, you're going to have them behind it very clearly as well. So yeah, that from my standpoint, that's only helpful. So for those listeners that, that may not be engaged and, and want to get engaged, how would you recommend that they get engaged? Is it through tra- trade organizations? And what do you think the most efficient and effective way to join the discussion? Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, depending on what different, aspects of the market you are. So if you're in the corporate sector, uh, the ARC has rolled out more engagement with corporates. There's been forums for that. So, you know, you can, you can go on the ARC's website and sure drop the mailbox a, a letter and, and say that you want to participate. And, you know, they'll gladly invite you to a whole bunch of conversations and forums. If you have a trade association that represents your sector, the trade associations have been some of the most impactful folks in the conversation here. And so you should definitely engage with your trade association. If you are a client of a major financial organization like ours, you can reach out to people like me and my team. You know, we speak to clients all the time and help and help folks getting engaged in the things that they care about. Um, and, and that, and that goes around the world. There's a working group in the UK under the bank of England, there's a working group in the, under the bank of Japan, um, et cetera. And so all of those forums exist for people to get involved for sure. The last topic, I guess, on the ISDA protocol, it's obviously released uh, uh, like about a month and a half ago now. We've seen about 1,500 adherents to the protocol announced. Do you expect that to be widespread? And what's your view on the, the uptake on the protocol? So the latest, you know, as we're recording this, I, I, I looked earlier this morning, and I think there's about 1,500 entities that have taken up on the protocol already. So, if, you know, and it's only been six weeks, and you got 1,500 signatures that rolled in. So, you know, pretty good momentum on that happening. But the protocol is a safety and soundness item. It, it th- These 2006 definitions, which are being amended, um, didn't have good contemplation of this event. All this protocol does is is, is updates the definition to, to protect you uh, as we go through this transition. It does so across all currencies around the world. And so, you know, most people might think it about it just for one, just for the other. Actually, the protocol is, is quite expansive in its coverage. On January 25th, all those new definitions take place anyway. If you don't sign the protocol, then you're going to have these old trades before January 25th and these new trades after January 25th that are on two sets of documentation. And that could create record keeping challenges and different, you know, variation differences, et cetera. But, you know, folks have to look at their book and make the best decision for them based on their documentation. The other thing that we're starting to hear from clients is the protocol is a great way to, to protect yourself from legal risk. 
but it also moves the risk from, from the legal risk over to operational risk. Because now you've signed a protocol, you have to track the different events for all the different currencies, you have to affect the change in the movement. And so one of the things that we're starting to hear in, in the market is that, all right, I'm going to sign the protocol to get myself protected legally. But what I really want to do is go look at my transactions and negotiate a transition over where I have the steering wheel and not in the passenger seat. And so that I don't have to live through the market foisting on me the transition and 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 the operational aspects of that. I can control the operational aspects and the economics if I do it myself. The the tone is going from I'll sign the protocol as a, as a safety net, but I want to have start to have conversations about transitioning my risk more actively because that's how I can be more in control from both an economics and operational aspect. And you know that that's likely what's going to play out you know through next year independent of, of all the other things that have changed for sure. And the, and the last point and what plays out over the next year, do you have any views of uh, what the next year looks like as we approach the end of 21 and then maybe going to the, the middle of 23 when, when LIBOR finally ceases, uh, any surprises to expect? Or do you think the outcomes are more predictable? Yeah. So, so, you know, the way I've described it is that the fog is slowly lifting on all these things and, um, the, the verbiage that is being used by regulators is a lot more clear. Uh, the directives, the dates, the specific tenors, the action, these things are a lot more precise and specific, you know, as we move on. So, you know, high level, I think that we'll continue to get more refined, detailed clarity, which will only guide the market more and more uh, towards what to do. And so, you know, I expect at least the front half of next year to get more of that and then, we're going to move into heavy action zone as, as all of that is laid out um, through the balance of next year. And you know, that was the expectation before, and that continues to be the expectation now. And then, like I said, what they did on Monday was, was more about protecting legacy and making sure that back book and, and, and the stuff that, that, that was out there is, is handled in the best possible way. But, but the movement forward you know, is, is clearly you know, not going to slow down at all on, on the new stuff. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jason. We really appreciate the time and the insights you've provided to our audience. Cheers, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Wish you, wish you and everyone else a wonderful holiday season. Thanks. You too. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please check out our LiborCast channel to hear other insightful discussions with market and industry leaders, including regulators, trade associations, and market participants about the work ahead in the LIBOR transition process. Thanks for listening and have a great day.